guys, without further ado, let's just welcome to this podium Dr. Stephen Collins. Well, we're going to be going really fast today, and it's completely Chad's fault. Because he asked me to insert something in here that I wasn't planning on showing you. In fact, I really don't even like to show it, as you'll see why. But uh, it, it's important. And because uh, I always ask, are there, are there any children or women here? And, and he said, no. So um, we can do it, I guess. So, um, uh, and, you'll, and you'll see why I say that. We're going to go really fast. Let's see, I'm going to mark time. Okay, it's 10 till. All right, so the, so the race begins. Um, I'm going to do a quick uh, overview, review, uh, for some of you who were not here last time. Let me introduce a couple of things. This book has been out for a couple of years now, um, Dis Discovering the City of Sodom. If you want to really read about the history of the search for Sodom uh, from our perspective and, and get involved in that and sort of uh, get behind our elbow as we go through the process of discovery, uh, that's a really good place to do it. I'm really excited about this next volume, though. Um, this is our first big uh, secular published volume uh, in what will eventually be a long series of volumes uh, that no one will read, but <clears throat> this is our, our first technical volume of the excavation uh, published by Eisenbrowns, and it's actually going to release at the uh, middle of uh, next month, which is pretty exciting to me. Um, if you want to get hooked up with this and uh, um, be shamelessly uh, asked for funds constantly, like twice a week, uh, get on our email list. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, uh, the, dig, the dig website is digsodom.com. Uh, it's really talelhamam.com, but nobody can remember how to spell it. So we just got digsodom.com. That hooks you up with our, our official website. If you want to get on our update lists, which means that during this, the dig seasons, you get an update every day, uh, kind of an idea of what's going on in photos and all of that. Then during the year, couple of times a month, maybe once a week, we send out updates as well, keeping you, because the, the thing goes uh, all year round. I mean, we're always doing something, some kind of process uh, is always happening. So we try to keep you up with that. You can get hooked up with that uh, email update by texting DIGSODOM, one word, to 22828, follow the instructions, and uh, that will get you there. Um, I'm going to do a, just a little quick review, so it's take about 10 minutes and uh, bring everybody up to speed if you weren't here last time. The existence uh, of Sodom and the cities of the plain is a good historical test case for the historical credibility of the Bible simply because, well, first, most scholars who have looked at the subject have denied that Sodom and Gomorrah even exist at all, that the cities of the plain are, are real. I have a couple of guys, one in particular, uh, who at the uh, annual meetings of the American Schools of Oriental Research, he just makes it a point to come up to me and sort of tweak my elbow and say, are you still looking for those non-existent cities? Um, of course, uh, I just tell him, well, oddly that we did find them. And I always have to remind them that they are there. But so many scholars just believe that it's sort of a, a myth uh, some sort of uh, moral tale, but no real reality to it. The second reason would be that for the scholars who do 
take the story seriously. Most of them, at least uh, up till uh, recently, have located Sodom toward the south end of the Dead Sea, where in fact there are no cities and no archaeology that can possibly associate tightly with the story uh, and mesh with the story, so that liberal scholars have really beaten the conservative evangelicals up over the issue. And uh, it's so those who have located Sodom at the southern end of the Dead Sea have sort of played into the liberals' hands that there really is no evidence down there to support such a thing. Uh, the third thing, if a legitimate, scientifically rigorous investigation into the location of these cities could actually lead to their discovery, not only that, but possibly that Sodom was destroyed in a manner commensurate with how the Bible says it was destroyed in Genesis 19. If all of that could be confirmed scientifically, it would be a huge confirmation of the historical character of the biblical record. And I would, I would insert at that point that that particular thing is important because to the, to the degree that the, the, the millennials, in, in my generation, a millennial was a was a guy who believed that Christ was going to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. You know? <laughs> um, so we kind of have to readjust the terminology. But um, for the present upcoming generations and the, maybe the one behind, to the degree that they accept the historical character of, of Scripture, to that degree, America will, will remain a fundamentally Christian nation. To the degree they do not believe that, we will slip into a, a European-style post-Christian era. So it's really touch and go right now as to how uh, young people are looking at the Bible. And it's not faring very well, by the way. So this is really a battle for the credibility of the Bible and the historical character of Scripture. Now, last time we talked about Finding an ancient city. How do you go about finding an ancient city mentioned in the biblical text? Well, there are three things. I always say it like this, right place, right time, right stuff. Now, let's look at the right place real quickly. I'm not going to go over This is going to be a real quick flash, a uh, very small uh, presentation compared to last year on this subject. But, and I'm not even going to read this. This just basically says that Abraham came up from Egypt uh, Lot came with him, and they parked at a place in Canaan called uh, Bethel and I. From that location, they had a little, uh, little run-in with some of their flocks and herds. They decided they couldn't occupy the same territory. So Abraham says to Lot, you go to the left, I'll go to the right, and all of that. And um, so Lot lifts up his eyes and looks and sees that the plain of the Jordan, the circle of the Jordan, is well watered. And uh, he decides that's where he wants to go. Well, there are three uses uh, of, a, of a word here, all translated plain. And there are a lot of Hebrew words, at least four, that you can, uh, by which you can say low, low uh, land, uh, valley, uh, bottom land, flat land, and so on. And it's not one of any of those. This is a completely different word. This is the word kikar. And kikar means a circle, a disc. It means a talent or a tortilla. It's used, uh, yeah, tortilla. That's not exactly a Hebrew word, but, you know, it, it works. Um, in the Old Testament, most of the time, it refers to a flat, circular disc of metal that we call a talent, talent of silver, talent of gold. It also refers to a flat, circular loaf of bread like a pita or a tortilla. Um, now, why do they call it that? They, they call it a kikar of the Jordan because that piece of real estate looks like 
a tortilla. When you stand on it, it's a, it's a big circular disc. And we stood on it. You remember, it was, it's a big, big circle. And um, the Jordan River comes down from the north and then opens up into a large circular uh, valley. And by the way, it's not called a Kikar because they had satellite maps. Um, it's called a Kikar because from the ground level, it really does look like a green disc. And we call this, uh, the Bible calls it, the Kikar, the disc of the Jordan. And um, the Jordan River comes down here. I'm going to identify where the Bible says it is. There, there are five different passages in the Old Testament that when you collate them together, they conclude this, that the Jordan River ends at the Bay of the Dead Sea at the mouth of the Jordan below Pisgah. And, of course, here's Pisgah or Mount Nebo, and that serves as the southern marker, the end of the descent. By the way, Jordan means the descent of the what? Fresh water, right? When it gets to the Dead Sea, lowest spot on the face of the earth, it dies. Okay, the descent ends and the water dies. So um, we're talking about the area then north of the Dead Sea. The Kikar of the Jordan was well watered, according to that Genesis text we just looked at. It's watered like the Garden of Yahweh, a river running right smack down the middle of it, as Genesis 2 describes. And it's watered like Egypt, which means they had access to a lot of water by which they could irrigate their crops. Very similar on a much smaller scale, of course, uh, as uh, what happened in Egypt. And so... How well watered is the Kikar of the Jordan? And by the way, we really know Jericho from that side, but these stars represent springs. There are lots and lots of springs, and they tap into them today and, and use that water to water the area, very similar to what they did in antiquity. This is the best watered agricultural land uh, in the region. Now, um, it says Lot could see the entire thing, all of that, from where he was standing up at Bethel and I, and, um, and he traveled eastward from there. This is where it all uh, comes down. Bethel and I is located right there. Lot looked from that location over toward the east, and he traveled eastward and pitched his tent toward Sodom. The traditional sites of Sodom and Gomorrah toward the south into the Dead Sea are not even in the picture. They're not even visible from that location at all. So we concluded early on that Lot looked to that direction, and Sodom, therefore, had to be on the eastern side of that disk of that circle, and that it could not possibly be in the Dead Sea Valley proper. So um, with that in hand, uh, that was pretty much a no-brainer almost. It should be there. Um, and by the way, it was. <laughs> there were a whole lot of cities, and not just small ones like Baba Dranmir, the traditional Sodom's about 10 or 12 acres. There are 62 acres inside the city wall at Sodom. It's really quite amazing. Um, but it has to be also in the right time, just can't be the right place. Most scholars agree that Abraham belongs to the Middle Bronze Age. That's the period between 2000 BC and 1500 BC. Abraham does belong there. Um, but Genesis 10 gives us Sodom and Gomorrah way back uh, much, much earlier. And we know that that's the time of the building of the first great cities. That's what that passage is all about. And we know when that happens archaeologically. That's in the early Bronze Age. So Abraham then belongs to that period, whereas the Genesis um, 10 cities of the plain belongs to the early Bronze Age. So if we were going to find a site that was biblical Sodom, what, what would we have to have? Cities that had 
that were started at least in the early Bronze Age and went through the Middle Bronze Age. If you don't have that, you probably don't have Sodom. So um, if you look in the area and we put all the cities together, by the way, there are two big intersections there. I think I always like this slide because it's so interesting to me that we, we see this little town, Jericho, the most famous city uh, on that western intersection. Do you see it? How big is Jericho? 10, 12 acres. <laughs> you know, it gets big billing. Well, but look at this other intersection across the, ri- the river. It's really interesting to realize that before our project, before the Tal Hammam excavation and the Cities of the Plain archaeological project that uh, associates with it, before that, there, no maps had anything on the east side of the river. On that other big intersection over there, there was nothing in the archaeological literature. We now know it looks a little bit different. We now know that Tal Hammam, this huge city, sits right in the middle of that, 62 acres. It's the largest Bronze Age city from the time of Abraham in the entire southern Levant, uh, Israel or Jordan. And not only that, there are a whole lot of other cities associated with it, cities, towns, and villages, and they all have names. And the big dog on the block is, of course, Tal Hammam, the site we believe is biblical Sodom. I don't even like to say that anymore, that we believe is biblical Sodom. If this is not Sodom, then I always say Jerusalem's not Jerusalem. There's more biblical evidence, uh, or ge- geographical evidence for this being Sodom than there is for Jerusalem being Jerusalem. Now, here she is. Why do we call her she? I don't know. I think everything bad and rotten. Why do we do that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, because the Bible does, I guess. Ezekiel, we're going to get to that passage later, calls it she. Um, but here's Talal Hamam. You can see the upper city. Um, if you know what you're looking at here, isn't that cool, Ron, to be able to look at that? And you're like, yeah, I, I walked up down, <laughs> I walked up and down that, that uh, steep slope right there many times. Um, here's the upper city. The lower city goes all the way out around over here on the other side. And you can see the well-watered plain of the Jordan uh, spreading out beyond it. But this particular site has that early Bronze Age from Genesis 10. It has the inter- intervening intermediate Bronze Age, and it also has the Middle Bronze Age of the time of Abraham all over it, everywhere. The city is big, uh, has the, basically the same footprint in all of these periods. Well, that's the right time frame for sure. And then the right stuff. And of course, a part of that was that the Bible says the city of Sodom was fortified. It was a fortified location. How do we know that? Genesis 19.1 says Lot sat in the gateway of Sodom. And if somebody sits in a gateway, I suppose you have a gateway because you've got to have a way to get in and, uh, because there's a wall around it. And so what we've discovered over the uh, ten, 10 excavation season, we just finished our 10th, and uh, was a great massive earthen rampart around it built entirely of mud bricks, tens of millions of mud bricks to build it with a city wall and towers going around it, an upper city and a lower city. And uh, you can see some of our excavation areas in, in yellow. Also, um, just a little picture of one of our city walls. This city wall from the Genesis 10 period is 18 feet thick. Okay, so it's a big fat city wall. It's, a, it's, it's major. Um, here's my wife and I standing atop the defensive rampart. By the way, that whole thing is built of mud bricks, one, one brick at a time. Uh, and uh, the upper city rampart, uh, ha- the upper city has its own defenses. Here's some of the defenses of the lower city, the early Bronze Age wall, the middle Bronze Age defensive system added to that after the fact. Um, 
There's the uh, entrance to that particular tower. This is Dr. Lane Rittmeyer's um, reconstruction drawing of the Middle Bronze Age gate system from the time of Abraham based on the uh, foundations we've discovered uh, in the archaeological record at Tal Hammam. Here's that internal gate tower. By the way, last year, last time when you saw this picture, all we had, the reason we don't see the inside is because all we had excavated at this point was the outside. We hadn't gotten inside the city wall. Um, now, you see there's a little suggestion of a building inside there, but we hadn't quite gotten there yet. But um, in the next season, last, last year, in 2014, we got to this. And uh, that brings us inside the city wall, gives us the actual gatehouse. And uh, there it is. You can see it has pillared construction. This blew us away because no other pillared gate has ever been discovered in, in all the excavations in Israel or Jordan. This is unique. Uh, it has some significance, which I'll share with you. It, we feel it also has a light well, and uh, this is pillared Minoan-style architecture, which is unknown in the Bronze Age. How do we get connected up with the Minoans in the, in the Middle Mediterranean, for Pete's sake? Um, well, I'll show you in a, in a few minutes. Um, this is the new, brand new, uh, reconstruction of the gate, the pillared gate uh, house by uh, Dr. Lane Rittmeyer, and... Um, it's pretty cool. A little cutaway, and you can see the isometric uh, part of it. And then he builds it up, and that's what it looks like. But you could get a sense of the scale of it and uh, how big the people are or how small the people are relative to the size of the whole thing. So, and then, oh, I love this one. This is our uh, newest uh, reconstruction of the entire city. And um, based on the gates and the towers, what's really cool about this is that these towers, this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one, and that one have all been discovered in the last couple of years, three of these this season. So uh, we, we are now confirming a very detailed uh, look at it. We also have a lot of little villages uh, hanging out around us too. But there's that upper city, and then there's that lower city. I want to show you just a couple of things. I wish I could, we just showed like 10,000 slides. I think there's at least that many. Um, <laughs> of cool stuff that we found this season. This is, li this is small. This has been held in a glove, a hand of a glove, you see. It's very small. But this is one of the neatest things I have ever, I didn't find it. Uh, this came from Dr. David Graves. Were you there? Uh, you, of course you were there. You were there the whole season when this was discovered. And um, do you see this? What does that look like? That's cloth. That's cloth. Nobody finds cloth in this part of the world preserved. Um, not only that, this, these little plates are brass plates of armor. It's armor plates sewn to a cloth tunic. This is from a military guy. Okay? Now, to me, this is just the coolest thing. Look at that. There, you, we can actually still see, by the way, this dates from the Middle Bronze period. That piece of cloth is at least 35, 37, 3,800 years old. It's still preserved. It's only preserved because the corrosion of the bronze itself preserved the cloth. Without the corrosion of the bronze, 
we wouldn't be able to see it. I mean, there's a snapshot from Abraham's world. That's just too cool to me. It's just amazing to me. Um, this is uh, sort of the, the feature square from the season. It's six by six meters, as, as Ron described. And um, that's my beautiful wife right there in the center with a dustpan in her hand. And uh, this, this was uh, uh, her domain for the entire season, and she's a square supervisor. But this area was really important because the previous season we had gone down deep in a probe and had found the Middle Bronze Age from the time of Abraham in, in a pretty significant way. So we decided to open it back up. It's remarkable for its finds. That we, have, we found great stuff, and we actually got into part of the palace, Palace of King Bera. That's pretty exciting. Um, but to me, the remarkable thing was the amount of dirt removed in five weeks by hand. Oh, and Chris, you worked there. <laughs> you know, that was a lot of work. Um, well, let's advance it a little bit. It keeps getting deeper. Six by six meters. That's, I think that's you, Chris, holding the, holding the tape. Six by six meters down four meters. That's 25 seven cubic yard dump trucks worth of dirt in five weeks by hand, by trowel and by dustpan. Uh, it was pretty furious. But uh, to me, that work, and that's what it looks like at the end of the season, and uh, all swept up and cleaned up. But um, there we have some remarkable looks, and all of our uh, balks are tagged with the locuses and the various levels and all of that uh, at the end of the season. Uh, we were Pretty proud of that when you get it all cleaned up and swept up and you step back and go, ah, finally got the garage clean. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know how that feels when you, when you look at it and, and there it is, that's what it looks like. Um, well, of course, then uh, introduce you to the terms of destruction. I'm not going to spend much time on this. I will say this, that toward the end of this year, uh, you are going to see a volume uh, coming out on the destruction of Sodom. There's also a major article that will, will appear in the Journal of Astrophysics by about six, uh, authored by about six different uh, astrophysicists who have been working with us uh, on this event. Um, how many LB sites here? Why is that important? Because the next phase of, of uh, history after the Middle Bronze Age, the time of Abraham, is the Late Bronze Age. There's no Late Bronze Age in that area. Well, until this season. But for the most part, there are no cities or towns operating in this area. In other words, when the destruction of Sodom took place, the entire 500 square kilometers on which it sat was completely uninhabited by cities, towns, and villages. Civilization went away for 700 years. Best watered land in the region, people stayed away for 700 years after the destruction of the city. That's pretty remarkable. So there are no sites there. It's just a blank because it was destroyed. And um, we always bring up these things. Bronze Age civilization on the Eastern Jordan disc with Tal al-Hammam as its cultural center flourished continuously for over 2,500 years, probably more like 3,000 years. The Bronze Age civilization, including Tal al-Hammam, came to an abrupt end toward the end of the Middle Bronze Age. And nobody lived there for the next seven centuries. 
Here's the critical question you have to ask from an archaeological point of view, and it has biblical implications, of course. Why did the best wa- uh, watered agricultural land in the region remain without cities and towns for the next seven centuries following its destruction? Hmm, very interesting. Um, here's, now, here's something you need to click on to. Watch for this later this year. It, it, this is the new name for it. Uh, This is how civilization ending or sometimes dinosaur ending (laughs) events uh, are named when these big impactors like comet fragments, fragments, asteroid uh, uh, fragments and so on impact, actually explode and impact upon the earth or they create a crater or they completely burn up but still toast the surface of the land. This one is going to be called, it already is being called in a doctoral dissertation being written on it, the 3.7K, 3.7 thousand year BP, before present, Kikar event. So there it is. Uh, That's what it's going to be called scientifically in the literature when it comes out uh, in in the scientific journals. Guess what? The Bible describes it in Genesis 19 as fire and burning stones, brimstone, out of the sky from Yahweh. Okay? It's actually going to have a scientific term. Um, Now, I'm going to go into something here that uh, is a a little um, rough to deal with. Chad asked me to go ahead and include this, and I went ahead and inserted it in at the last second because I normally don't like to talk about it. It does make me uncomfortable. Um... Why did God destroy Sodom? What is that? It's a bull. Horns down. Very important. Horns down. By the way, this is, this is called the realistic version. Why? Because it's got eyes, and it's got ears and eyes and uh, a little thing going down, like a heifer here, a little coloration and nose and bottom lip and the whole nine yards. I mean, it's just, it's a bull. And um, why does it look like that? Now, this is from our site. This is off a piece of pottery from our site. We have many of these bull representations now. Um, That's from Middle Bronze Age Crete in the middle Mediterranean. Um, Why do the horns go down? This is the view of a bull when you bull vault, not pole vault, bull vault. I actually have a video from Spain of somebody bull vaulting. You make a bull really mad, and when he runs at you, you jump up in the air, do a flip, and let him run under you, and you land on your feet. Doesn't sound real smart, but this was the big sport on Crete. This is the, the down horns. That's simply, the horns are not necessarily down. It's just that this is the view of a, of a bull when his head is down <laughs> and he has ill intent towards you. Okay. Or this is the view of a bull vaulter as he goes over the top, bull vaulting. This is a Minoan artistic representation extremely rare if not unseen in Bronze Age Canaan 
Everybody know what that is? Uh, it's very graphic, but that came from our dig site. We wondered, why are we finding these? You know who found this? Pastor's wife from Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> Bless her heart. She was so excited she had it. She was running it around to everybody, showing it around the hotel. Yeah. Um, why does this exist? Is by the way, it's life-size. Um, I'll tell you why it exists, because in the central Mediterranean cultures, the relationship between an older man and a young boy was the way society was structured. Here are simply some Greek representations. This is not men and women, this is men and men. Okay, and it's a little graphic, but it brings home a point. These civilizations had something about them that was offensive to God. And when God saw it, um, he did something about it. Here's Strabo. Greek explorer of the first century and modern scholars document the, what we call the institutional pederastia that formed the structure of Minoan society during the Bronze Age. So this is well-documented antiquity. By the way, uh, people like Plato and Aristotle were horrified by this practice, being Greeks themselves. But pederastia was a fundamental social structure and a requirement of adolescent male upbringing. This was not an option. They didn't ask you if you were gay or straight. This is how young men in, in Crete, in the early Mycenaean society on uh, on the Greek mainland, this is how they were raised. It's shocking, but we all knew this. Didn't we all study this? Didn't we all study the Spartans? This was the, this was the basic of Spartan military, Athenian military. It was the basis of almost all military um, structures across Asia, Europe and Asia uh, in the ancient world. Even the samurai culture of D Japan was structured in exactly the same way. And uh, by the way, today I've had many, many, many veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan telling us this is exactly how it happens today. Here's what happens. Male relations with women who often lived in separate houses or villages was reserved for producing children. A male child was raised by his mother until age 12. Then he was given over to a 22-year-old male, an Erastes, or lover, in a formal, intimate relationship for eight years, after which the period, uh, the period, after which period the process repeated itself. The now 30-year-old male was thus eligible to take a wife, while the now 20-year-old graduate, or Ephebe, took on his own 12-year-old beloved Eramenos. And that's how generation by generation uh, they were raised. Cretan pederastia was exhib uh, exhibiting a unique feature, a ritual abduction, a ritual kidnapping arranged ahead of time. So here's what would happen on Crete. An influential man or influential men in the society would first send out a gang of ritual abductors to kidnap a desired eramenos or a beloved young male. The second thing they would do is ask permission from the guardian, the parent, or parents to conduct the ritual kidnapping. And of course, if they refused, 
It would be considered a cultural slap in the face to the Erastes uh, if this was not allowed. So it was a cultural no-no to say no, because this is how it was done. The conduct of the Minoan-style pederastic society of Sodom would have been offensive to the indigenous Canaanites who themselves practiced things like child sacrifice and female ritual, female and male ritual prostitution, um, to, uh, and to migrant Mesopotamians like Abraham and his Hebrew clan. So this sort of thing about the city of Sodom, and that's where that connection comes in, the Minoan connection to the city of Sodom. Um, indeed, the outcry against Sodom was great. You ever wonder why the Bible said that? The outcry against Sodom was great. You have, who, who surrounds Sodom? Canaanites who were sacrificing their children and who had all sorts of uh, uh, activities that were not exactly uh, uh, sterling. But they were crying out against Sodom. The outcry was great. However, Lot had made a home for himself in Sodom, and was. it's interesting to consider that Lot's sons-in-law-to-be did not leave the city when the angels told them to leave. Remember that? They refused to leave the city. I think it was because they had not completed the required eight years as pederastic mentors prior to their marriageability as required by their social structure. So to at least a certain degree, Lot and his daughters had bought into this. According to the Hebrew Scriptures, why did Yahweh destroy Sodom? Now before I get into that, I want to, uh, to give you the connection here. Do you remember that in the time of Abraham, when Lot was living in Sodom, that Abraham was told by the angels that he was going to destroy the city of Sodom. God told him that. And he also sent the angels to tell Lot to get him out of the city. And so they came. Now, I always envision, if you envision an angel, what do you envision? A strapping, strong, handsome young man. Okay. So I assume, unless they're ugly angels... I assume that these guys were fairly uh, attractive men. And they came into the city of Sodom. And they came in and met Lot in the city square. And they said, we're going to spend the night here. God's going to destroy the city, but we're, we're going to lead you out. But we're going to spend the night here. And what does Lot tell them? Uh-uh. No, you're not. You're coming with me to my house. Because in the Near Eastern society, to be under his house, under his roof, is to be under his protection. He is their guardian while they are there. And so he brings them uh, to his house. Now, what, what happens is uh, these guys are coming into the city. Obviously, all eyes are on these new guys. And somebody got interested in them according to this pederastic practice. And what was the next thing that happened? It says men and boys, men young and old from all over the city, came to the house of Lot 
And they politely knocked, by the way, the first time. Please send these men out to us so that we might have sexual relations with them. That was basically the way it was styled in the Bible. And Lot says, no. Well, of course, when he refused, there was a near riot, and God took care of that. Uh, The angels caused the blindness and so on, and they couldn't uh, fulfill what they came to do. What was this thing going on? This was an attempt to ask the guardian, or this person who is in charge, Lot, permission. Send these out to us. And then Lot does something pretty bizarre. He says, well, no, you can't have these men, but here are my daughters. Hmm, very strange. No, he knew nothing was going to happen to his daughters. Why? Because even on Crete where this whole thing started, it was a capital offense to rape a woman. He knew nothing was going to happen. And nothing did happen. Daughters went out with Lot the next day. But it's very interesting that there was a ritual kidnapping, and the only other place we see a ritual kidnapping relative to to homosexual practices is in the island of Crete. We have, through art, through architecture of the, of the multi-pillared gateway uh, and the bulls, we have a connection to the Minoan civilization which gives us a picture of why God wanted them destroyed. It's pretty remarkable. The connecting thing there is Genesis chapter 19. That's the connector. Um, why did God destroy Sodom? We always think that God destroyed Sodom because of their sexual practices, but that's only one facet of the the reason. In fact, it's not even given by God as the reason. By the way, if God would have destroyed Sodom merely for its sexual practices, he would have wiped out everything from Europe to Japan and everything in between. He completely wiped it out. Uh, But there were other reasons So my point of this is simply to say, let's not be so arrogant as to think that the only really bad sins are the sins that we don't get involved in. Right? It's easy to talk about stuff that we don't do, that other people do. Then we got to go to the real reason that God destroyed Sodom, sort of from God's mouth to our ear. And it's only one place in the Bible, and here it is. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. This is God speaking. Now, this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. By the way, the little phrase, as you have seen, means that the people who read this knew that there was a big pile of ruins that they were familiar with that used to be that city. You've seen it. And there it is. Why did God destroy Sodom? He destroyed Sodom for a whole lot of reasons. Was the sexual immorality part of it? Yes, they did detestable things before me. But before all of that, they were arrogant. They didn't take care of of the widows and orphans. Do you know what they did with widows and orphans on Crete during this period? 
And probably at Sodom, you know what they did with widows and orphans? They prostituted them. They brought them into prostitution. It's not taking care of the widows and orphans. So uh, it was a society that, according to God, had no redeemable features left to preserve. He wanted it snuffed out. He wanted it wiped out so that eventually he might bring his his own people into the land at at a point. All right. So here are the Mycenaeans and the Minoans. There's Sodom. Now, what's interesting? I find this extremely interesting. I'm not saying there's a connection, but maybe in the subtext I am. Um, When God destroyed Sodom, It was about the 18th century B.C., 18th, 17th century B.C. There was another little event in the 18th, 17th century B.C. It was the explosion of the Thera volcano at Santorini in the Greek islands. You know what happened? When that volcano exploded, by the way, exploded same time. In the same time frame that Sodom was destroyed, according to the archaeological evidence, Thera blew up. The explosion was so powerful that it actually cocked the island of Crete up geologically, created a tsunami that wiped out Minoan Crete and that wiped out the Mycenaean culture as well. I just think, is that a coincidence that when God took out Sodom, he also took out the mother culture that gave rise to Sodom at the same time, to wipe them out? That's interesting, just kind of a historical uh, parallel. So the Sodom narrative carefully marks out a location for the cities of the Kikar north of the Dead Sea on the east side of the Jordan River, where in fact huge Bronze Age cities do exist, exhibiting all the cultural influences described in the book of Genesis, including the one we we just reviewed. Such a high degree of correspondence between text and ground cannot be mere coincidence. All right? Now, um, this is just a a little end. (laughs) We got five minutes or three. I'm going to do this really quick. We discovered something this year that just knocked me for a loop. It just was, it was so exciting and unexpected. Remember I said, we don't have any late Bronze Age hanging around here. Except we discovered a building on the top of the tell, reminding me of this scripture. Moses and the Israelites camped on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. There on the plains of Moab, they camped along the Jordan from Beit Yeshemot to Abel Shatim. We just pass over that and go on our way. Anybody ever... Now, most scholars believe that Talal Hamam already is Abel Shatim. This is the most logical place militarily for the Israelites to camp. But what about Beit Yeshemot? You know what that means? It means the house of the desolation, the house of the desolation. We found on the top of Sodom in the upper city a single freestanding house. Now I want you to look at this layer. That line, everything below that line is the destruction of the layer of Sodom that belongs to the, uh, the Sodom in the time of Abraham. 
On, everything on top of that was built, a lot of it, 700 years later. But a little bit of it, right there, just a skiff of it, was built during the late Bronze II period. Guess what period that is? That's exactly when Moses would have been there. This building existed from about 1400 B.C., maybe down to about uh, 1360 B.C., according to the pottery, and um, it's just a little pile of ruins. It's a single building. There's not a stratum throughout the whole area. It's just a single, freestanding, isolated building with huge timbers. Uh, Some of these timbers are 30 centimeters in diameter. This is way, way overkill for domestic architecture. This isn't a house. This is a small, maybe 10 by 10 meter building, maybe even not that big, but it is hugely uh, uh, supported by great beams and by some pretty um, impressive architecture and furniture. Uh, This is a chair leg, piece of a chair, probably uh, uh, burned, carbonized on the floor in a jar, and we found lots and lots of material here. And uh, interesting, in that debris, we also found weights and scale pans, balance scale pans. What do you do with balance scale pans? You take payments. What is this house? The Bible talks about Moses saying to the Moabite kings and to the Edomites, we'll stay on the highway, we'll pay our tariffs or we'll pay our taxes or our fares to pass through the area. We believe this is a terrace house, a tariff house sitting on the top. What would you name a house sitting on a big pile of burned ruins? I think they called it the house of the desolation. It's the house of the desolation sitting up there, a house that is sitting on a pile of ruins. Why would it be there? Why, why would you put a terrace house at Tal el-Hammam or at Sodom? Because it's there at the crossroads of the major tr- north, south, east, west trade routes. So you've got to have a tax house, and that's what we think it is. It's pretty powerful stuff. Um, so we believe it was uh, sitting right on top, and we believe that I think Moses destroyed it. It was f- burned, knocked down, because Moses needed the top of, this, of, of that platform of the upper city to camp his com- put his command camp, Beit Yeshimot. So they camped from Beit Yeshimot to Abel Shatim, which is the lower city uh, where the acacia trees would grow out and beyond. And so I think we have now both locations identified. Was there a literal house of desolation? Yes. And I think we found it. I'd, uh, I think we did. Well, the Bible and the trial do work remarkably well together, and uh, they tell us things that we ought to know. One of the things that comes out of the study of Sodom and the excavation of Sodom is the reality that God judges And God gives us a prescribed morality. He says, there are certain things you must do. And there are certain things you must not do. Because I've made you in a certain way. And to maximize your life uh, uh, for use by God himself in this world, we do certain things. Um, And if we don't, as individuals and as a nation, that God will judge Because once Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, they forever after became a metaphor for the wrath of God. 
and 50 times, more than 50 times in Scripture, it's referred to as a warning, as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Israel, if you don't repent, we're going to make you like that, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus said, at the coming of the Son of Man, it will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, we may just, in fact, be slumping toward Sodom. But let's hope not. Let's keep fighting. Let's not give up the fight. Let's keep fighting in the circles of influence that God gives us uh, to, to raise up the banner of Yahweh and his greatness and his holiness and his desire to take everybody uh, in, into his bosom to, to heaven, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you.